This episode contains content that may be difficult to hear. Please check the show notes for more information. Listener discretion is advised. I was hanging out with this group of people that definitely shouldn't have been around. And one of them had a red can of gas in their hands. Like, hey, we're going to go to the gas station. We're going to go fill up some some bottles and make some Molotov cocktails and go throw them out by the lake in the middle of the woods. You know, at that point, I had a really, really, really bad gut feeling. And I remember standing there. Everyone was behind me at this point. So as far as my vision went, you know, I'm just looking at the lake and enjoying the scenery. And, you know, the next thing I know, I look down, you know, I'm actually on fire. The only thing I saw before I remember actually acting on what was going on was everybody starting to run away from the scene. Still to this day, you know, I feel a sense of, you know, isolation and aloneness that, you know, I have felt ever since that incident occurred when it came down to continuing just being an angry, spiteful, bitter person because of the things that happened. I had to really take my first introspective look at myself in the mirror and be like, is this, are you going to die on this hill? Or are you just going to let yourself ruin everything? In motorsports, the arena exists between the narrow confines of a racetrack. It's a game of inches where a fraction of movement can be the difference between a top 10 finish and disaster. Cody Ware knows this as well as any driver. At age 26, he's been racing professionally for a decade. He currently competes in the NASCAR Cup Series full-time, driving the number 51 Nurtec ODT Ford Mustang for his father's team, Rick Ware Racing. Cody is one of the few in his sport to speak out about mental health. As a child, he was bullied which escalated to a violent attack in his teens, leaving him with physical and mental injuries that would follow him throughout his life. For most of his career, Cody hid this trauma between the white lines of his arena. But in 2017, a car wreck on the course would force him to finally face his trauma head-on and learn new strategies to deal with his mental health. From the Players' Tribune, I'm former National Hockey League goaltender Corey Hirsch. And I'm psychiatrist Dr. Diane McIntosh. Welcome to Blindsided. Mental health, sports, and life. What's been the reaction of your peers uh, in the race world to you being so outspoken about your mental health? I think most high-level elite athletic organizations are not big on, on talking about this, but it's changing Have you had any reaction, good, bad, or ugly, in response to your outspokenness? I'd say most of it's been positive. You know, it's definitely a double-edged sword. But, you know, so I probably was first vocal about my mental health back in 2017, I believe. It was was definitely after Darlington of 2017, which is kind of where I had my last straw and kind of my my rock bottom from a career standpoint. And um, So after that, you know, I was definitely like, okay, this is either going to go really, really bad or, you know, really worse, even worse. And so I was surprised that there was a lot of positivity that came out of, you know, me talking about it, both from within the industry and uh, from a fan perspective. Um, Then, you know, over, over the past couple of years, you've seen guys like Bubba Wallace and a few other drivers that have started to slowly talk about, you know, their battle with, um, you know, depression, anxiety, and other mental health issues. And so I think as a whole, you know, NASCAR and the people in the industry are pretty open and pretty understanding. I think that there still is a lot of stigma 
beneath the surface. But for me, just talking from my own personal experience, you know, last year in 2021, I was struggling quite a bit just um, with my own confidence. I was getting pretty beat down. I was having a really hard year last year in Cup. And, uh, you know, I just was definitely struggling mentally. And I actually got called to the NASCAR hauler at Richmond last year, which typically, if you get called to the NASCAR hauler to talk to the big wigs and the VPs, like you're in trouble. Like you don't get called to the to the principal's office unless you've, you've messed up pretty big. And so I'm like, okay, well, I don't even know what I did, but it can't be good. And so I sat there with Steve O'Donnell, uh, Scott Miller, and a, and a few other guys from, from NASCAR. And they said, hey, we just wanted to check on you, uh, check, give a check-in with you because it seems like, you know, based on some things you've been talking about on social media and just kind of some of the stuff we see that you're dealing with, like, are you doing okay? And at first I was kind of worried to tell the truth. I was like, ah, do I just BS it and, you know, stiff, up, stiff upper lip it and be like, I'm doing great. Like, I don't want to give them any red flags or issues to potentially cause problems. But I decided, you know, I just need to be honest and talk about the things that I'm dealing with. And they were like, hey, well, we're here for you and we're here to listen now, but we also want to be able to help you uh, get the help that you need. And so they actually got me in touch with another NHL player, uh, Jay Harrison, who is now a sports psychiatrist. And so, you know, I've been working with him now for a little over a year, haven't recently, but um, he did a lot of work for, with me all through the year last year, just working from the blend of, you know, my mental health, blending that with how to battle that and deal with that while I'm also trying to be a professional race car driver. And so that was a very encouraging moment for me seeing that, you know, NASCAR at the highest level was not just interested, but they wanted to help be a part of the change and help people get better. And so I think that NASCAR is pretty proactive with that stuff. You know, everything that I've seen within my industry outwardly, I think is um, really awesome. I think where it definitely becomes more of a double, double-edged sword is, you know, when when things happen, you know, people definitely, from a fan perspective, they love to use the mental health stuff in, as an excuse for anything that goes wrong. It's like, oh, you had a crash or something happened on the racetrack. Oh, it must be your head. You're going crazy. You need to, like, stop racing and things like that. But obviously, that's, that's not the case. And so it's just, it does become a, a kind of a sword and a weapon that people that don't like me can use against me. It doesn't really mean much, but still, it's not fun for people just to be like, oh, you know, you can't drive because you're going crazy and all this and blah, 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 you know, whatever people that don't understand what mental health really is. But, you know, I'm very fortunate to be racing for a family team where I can have the confidence to be outspoken and talk about these things and try to, you know, make whatever difference I can with the platform that I have because I think a lot of other people, even if the reception would be positive, you know, would be afraid for their jobs or security in the industry. You know, there's still a very much a stigma of it's, you know, NASCAR is this, it's cars and horsepower and adrenaline and it's this manly man sport and, you know, you got to be tough, and big and strong to be a part of it. And I think that if you're even not as a driver, but if you're a, a mechanic or a crew chief or someone at a race team and you're vocal about your mental health problems, you know, even if it wouldn't happen, you know, I think people would be afraid to be like, oh, well, uh, are they going to fire me or let me go? Because they think that I'm not going to have the mental fortitude or toughness to, to do my job. And so I think that a lot of people, even if it's for the wrong reasons, are afraid to speak up. And I think as more people like myself and Bubba Wallace and others in the, in the industry, people that work for NASCAR directly can be more open about these things. I think that it'll show people that you don't have to be afraid because I think that there's just more so of a fear 
of being judged than there actually is the judgment being cast in the industry. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up with a dad who was a in NASCAR? You know, it was it was funny. Like I kind of, in a weird way, was uh, a little oblivious to it. I made the transition from private school in elementary to uh, public school, and I remember I got in trouble the first day I was in public school because uh, apparently I lied, and so I, I had to tell the class, sit up in front of everybody, and they're like, "Oh, well, what does your dad do?" And then I said, "Oh, my dad's a race car driver," and I got sent to the principal's office for lying and um, had to basically get my dad on the phone and my parents on the phone so I wouldn't get suspended for, you know, making these false accusations. Um, So at that point, you know, before that, you know, I didn't, um, I I went to some races, but I wasn't very in tune with what was going on in my dad's life and career. And, you know, the very naive, simplistic, uh, childlike mentality I had was, oh, my friend's dad's a banker, my other dad's friend's a firefighter, my dad's a race car driver, you know, it's just a job. It's, It's whatever, it's what he does, you know, I didn't think there was anything special or unique about it. And obviously that was kind of the first example that I can recall back to that was like, okay, like I'm definitely being brought up in a very unique environment, something that most people aren't accustomed to. And that definitely grew into more curiosity and interest in what led into my passion of racing once I got into high school and really understood the gravity of how unique of an opportunity I had to be involved as as a race car driver and start my own career. Wow. How did your friends react? How did your classmates react once they got to know that your dad was a race car driver? Did that ever, was it ever an inroad or was it a barrier to making friendships? Not really. I think, um, you know, it's kind of interesting because I actually grew up in an area that's largely known for having a large uh, NASCAR fan base. So Greensboro, North Carolina, which is my hometown, is actually typically, um, when you look at the uh, viewership profiles for after the races, um, as far as the Fox and NBC broadcasts go, Greensboro is actually typically the number one viewership city for NASCAR. And despite that, you know, most of my friends growing up really didn't have an interest or care. You know, I wasn't treated differently because I was, you know, in, in racing or had a family involved in racing. And it really wasn't a positive or a negative. It still just kind of was, you know, okay, hey, this is just part of who I am and what I'm doing from that perspective. Right. Now, you talk a little bit about your experience with bullying when you were growing up. Can you share a little bit of that experience with us? Yeah. So, I mean, it definitely started off, you know, in elementary school, making that transition to public school. I was a pretty shy kid. And so, you know, making new friends in a new environment, you know, definitely being very sheltered in private school, you know, making a lot of those transitions were some of the things that I was looking forward to. I actually enjoyed, you know, taking the bus to school and and hanging out and meeting people on the bus ride to school and things like that. But, um, you know, pretty quickly I realized that, you know, I, I didn't have a whole lot in common with a lot of the kids growing up. You know, I was pretty to myself, not a big talker, wasn't a big people person, definitely would realize now, obviously I'm definitely an introvert. And a lot of my interests definitely were things that got me picked on. I was, I'm, I was and still am big into anime, video games, lots of stuff that you know, a lot of people love to like pick, pick on me for and make fun of me on, things like that. Pretty run-of-the-mill stuff. It wasn't until 
middle school where things started to pick up from just teasing and making jokes and comments and typical stuff to where a physical element definitely got brought into the mix. And then, um, you know, in high school, definitely got even turned up to another uh, pretty dramatic level. And so, you know, one of the things that was tough about that was I was pretty vocal about what I was struggling with and just the environment in the schooling system that I was brought up in on the public side, pretty nonchalant about it, just with, unfortunately, they just had a lot of bigger problems to deal with. There were kids that were actually, you know, even in middle school towards the end of it, there was kids that were getting into fights where people actually got stabbed. That my first day of high school, somebody actually got stabbed. And I remember the reaction was a lot of people actually started pulling out their phones and were recording it. And like, they didn't, to them, it was just another day at Ragsdale High School. And so, you know, again, even though I'd already been in the public school system for a while at that point, I was like, man, this is definitely like a cutthroat, tough environment to be in. And that's where I've definitely felt like my voice wasn't being heard as far as, um, you know, some of the things that are dealing with that escalated, you know, more and more as time progressed. I just wanted to make sure, Cody, that I understood. So when you were experiencing bullying, you actually were telling people, you were telling them at school, did you share with your parents? And it didn't, doesn't sound like at least at school, that they responded? Yeah, um, at school, there was definitely minimal to, to no response. I definitely was pretty vocal about it with my parents, and I don't fault them for it, but they definitely felt like it was more of me being thin-skinned and being too emotional about certain things rather than it being a genuine issue. Pretty much until it was too late did they realize, you know, the severity of what was going on. So this... This bullying came to a a peak, really, when you were in high school. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Yeah, so to summarize it without taking an hour to talk about it, you know, I'd say basically freshman year, I started hanging out with the wrong group of people. You know, at that point, I think the bullying had probably already done more of a toll than I probably realized um, as far as my self-esteem and confidence and things like that. And um, at this time, I actually hadn't really started racing much. I think I started dabbling a little bit, but hadn't really started doing it on a full-time basis. You know, I started hanging out with people just trying to seek uh, validation and attention and any sort of kind of positive feedback. So I was hanging out with people that, in hindsight, they were still really crappy friends to have, but they were people that invited me to hang out and do things and were people that were consistent, whether that was a good or a bad thing, they were consistent in my life, which is something that, you know, I definitely hadn't experienced up until that point outside of my family. And um, in high school, obviously, you know, you start start getting older, you're starting to find love and dating and, and things like that. And um, there was a girl that I started to date and was in a relationship with. And um, one, of the, one of the friends that was in this group apparently had feelings for this girl and had it potentially, I'm not, I can only remember if they actually dated or not, but they definitely had a thing at one point and whatever. And so there's definitely a lot of animosity and jealousy that's sort of brewing at one point. But again, you look at that like, okay, you know, it's just teenagers and love and emotions and hormones and things like that. But um, it definitely started to get to the point to where him and his more direct group of friends started to pick on me and more just to turn into violence. It wasn't bullying. I mean, it was just, you know, I was getting hit and punched. And it always happened in situations where 
there would always be a, a play fight that broke out or something and things would always get taken, you know, a little too far. And, you know, that's the way that it always look. And, you know, so I couldn't just be like, oh, they're just beating the crap out of me for no reason and things like that. And one of the biggest places that it happened was actually during training for wrestling. So I was, I was a wrestler in high school and middle school. And a lot of times, like, it would go beyond just wrestling to where it just turned into full-blown, you know, people punching me, kicking me and stuff that's clearly not wrestling. But they would use those training periods as an excuse to gang up on me and just, you know, beat the crap out of me. And um, so then it escalated to, to the worst level, which is I was hanging out with this group of people that, you know, definitely shouldn't have been around. And uh, I remember them, uh, I remember we were walking over to the gas station and one of them had a red can of gas in their hands. Like, hey, we're going to go to the gas station. We have some some empty bottles. We have some rags. We're going to go fill up some some bottles and make some Molotov cocktails and go throw them, throw them out by the lake. There's this lake in the middle of the woods out in one of the neighborhoods, uh, Sedgefield, where a lot of these kids lived. And, um, you know, at that point, I had a really, really, really bad gut feeling. And that's probably, you know, the first time in my life where I really can look back and say, hey, like, this is definitely my gut and my conscience telling me that something is not right with this situation. But despite that, I was just dumb and naive and kind of pushed through, you know, the feelings of danger and the feelings of, you know, this is even a little bit worse than the things that might have, even though nothing happened yet, you know, they just, my gut told me this is going to be a bad day and I should probably not be here. But, you know, being a stupid kid, I didn't listen to myself or listen to my gut. And um, basically we get out there once we get done with the gas station, we're walking through the woods, we get to the spot where there's a bunch of rocks and there's the lake and got all these Molotov cocktails made and things like that. I remember standing there, um, just looking at the lake. There, were, Everyone was behind me at this point. So as far as my, my vision went, you know, I'm just looking at the lake and enjoying the scenery. And, you know, the next thing I know, I smell burning and I'm like, man, what is, where is that coming from? And then I start, I'm like, hmm, that smells like, like flesh or an animal or something that's not just, you know, gasoline and fire. And I look down and, uh, you know, I'm actually on fire. And at that point, I didn't uh, really know what to do. The only thing that I remember visually doing before I, the only thing I saw before I remember actually acting on what was going on was everybody starting to run away from the scene. And immediately after that, after a second of, of realizing, hey, everyone's leaving me for dead here, um, I end up doing what they tell you to do in, in school, which is stop, drop, and roll, which, you know, you would sound like a really corny, cliche thing to say, but having been someone that's actually lived through that, I will say I can be a testament to stop, drop, and roll does work. It doesn't work nearly as quickly as you'd like it to work, but um, it does It does work because, I mean, within probably 25 to 30 seconds, I was able to get the fire out just covering myself in dirt and mud and things like that. So once once the initial actual event occurred, you know, I, I'm sitting there by the edge of the water just thinking to myself, you know, what do I do? At that point, the pain hadn't really set in yet because I'm obviously in a state of shock and adrenaline. Basically just sat there for what felt like hours. I'm sure it was a lot less than that. But um, eventually one of them, I guess, grew conscious and felt bad about what happened and ended up helping me. I couldn't walk, so basically had to carry me back to his house and put me in his tub and was like, hey, well, we'll just we'll just wash you off. And, you know, we don't need to tell anyone's parents about this. Like, we don't need anyone getting in trouble and all this and that. And I'm like, I, at this point, like, the pain isn't really set in yet, but I'm looking at my leg and I'm like, you know, I have chunks of skin coming off of my body. And um, I'm like, dude, I clearly need to go to the hospital. Like, this isn't something that I'm going to be able to take some ibuprofen and, and slap some bandages on and call good. 
And at that point, I was like, I'm going to call my mom. So I called her. I was like, hey, um, I need you to come pick me up and take me to the hospital. And she's like, kind of irritated with me. She's like, well, why do you need to go to the hospital? I'm like, I got hurt. Like, I don't want to freak you out, but like, I definitely need to go to the hospital. Like, that's a for sure thing. And she's like, well, I don't think so. Like, if you were in that much pain or you needed something, like, you would sound like you're in pain. I'm like, I just need you to trust me here. Like, I'll, I'll, I can explain this to you more in a bit. Could you just come grab me and, uh, you know, we can get this you know, situation figured out. So, you know, she still was a bit agitated, but she's like, all right, I'm coming to pick you up. We'll see what the deal is. And it wasn't until I saw my mom's face that I really realized how bad it was because, I mean, she immediately burst into tears. And that was just really hard for me to see because I don't ever want to see her hurting like that. And I've definitely, definitely was a problem child and had a lot of issues, but I didn't want to bring that kind of pain on my mother. And that really was when I realized, okay, this is like really, really, really serious. And, um, I just remember going to the hospital. Thankfully, we had some friends in the ER. They were able to get us taken care of in there. I was able to skip the line and definitely take take advantage of some of the privileges of knowing some people at the hospital. But um, basically, they were like, well, what happened and all this and that. And um, all throughout the time of me heading to the hospital and things like that, I'm getting all sorts of texts because Tanner, the guy that had taken me back to his house, obviously let all these kids know that, hey, he's going to the hospital and blah, blah, blah. And so they're like, you better not tell anything. You better not say what happened and all this and that. And, you know, the doctors came in. They're like, well, uh, you know, tell us what happened. And I was like, oh, well, me and my friends are hanging out and I slipped and I got caught in some fire and all this and that. And they're like, okay, well, why do you smell like gasoline? I'm like, um, you know, I just, I kind of looked at them and just kept, <laughs> it was so stupid because I they knew I was lying. I knew I was lying, but, you know, I was like, ah, you know, we just, we we started the fire with gasoline as, as dumb as that sounded and, and, and was. Um, that was the story that I stuck with out of, out of fear for what would have come next. And, you know, there was definitely a lot of frustration on everyone's face because people wanted to know what really happened. And it was obvious to everyone, including myself, that wasn't what really happened, but fear stopped me from, you know, speaking the truth. After that, they did some initial exams and taking a look at me, and they determined that, you know, the hospital wasn't equipped to, you know, take care of my third-degree burns and the things that I was dealing with. So I ended up getting a hospital ride to over to Wake Forest, which is the ne basically the next city over from Greensboro and High Point, to go to the Wake Forest Burn Center, where they could actually properly treat my burns and take care of it. And, you know, at that point, basically when I got to the first hospitals, when the pain started setting in and from the time I was in the hospital at uh, High Point Regional to Wake Forest, I mean, I probably was eight to 10 shots of morphine in and I was still in some of the most excruciating pain of my life once the adrenaline and the shock went away. And so just horrible, horrible time in the hospital getting taken care of with the burns and Everyone did an amazing job taking care of me, but you know there there was no amount of drugs or morphine or opiates in the world that were going to take away the pain and what I was dealing with. And so, you know, kind of fast forwarding a little bit after I got taken care of at the hospital, my grandmother, who was a retired nurse, actually ended up moving in with me and my family to help take care of me because the burns were so bad. I needed to change dressing pretty much every day. I uh, couldn't walk. I was on crutches for two to three months. And, uh, you know, everything, just living basic life was was a real chore. So that was definitely a lot. And the problem that I dealt with even after, after all the pain and the frustration of the actual event occurred, you know, there was so much time for, you know, kids to spread rumors. And some of it was malicious, which was definitely spread by some of the people that were directly involved in the incident. 
But then there was also a lot of, you know, kids just, it's like a game of telephone. You know, you hear one story, it gets manipulated a little bit more each time it gets brought on. And so, you know, by the time I was actually back in school and could actually talk about the events that happened and um, really explain what went down, it was kind of a joke at that point. It was a running joke. And I was the boy who set himself on fire, you know, because the story was, you know, he fell on a fire. He, He just was being a dumb idiot and caught himself on fire and all this and that. And there, it was even so bad to where a lot of the teachers kind of like said kind of jokes in passing and things like that. And, you know, I actually had a lot of pictures and my mom had pictures and she actually got so worked up that she, you know, showed some of the teachers, you know, how bad the burns and how bad the incident really was because there were grown adults and teachers that were kind of laughing off the situation. And it's like, you guys have no idea how bad this was and what I went through just because I didn't come back to school until I'm 100% and feeling great and all this and that. That doesn't take away from the months of what I went through. And, you know, at that point, after everything had kind of recovered and other than dealing with with the blow of all that and the emotional trauma and damage that went with all the ridicule that went along with that, the final blow for me was uh, the girl that I was dating actually ended up cheating on me with one of my best friends. And so it was like at that point, basically everyone that I knew and, and had in my life outside of my family had basically betrayed and isolated me. And I just have, you know, I, I'm a lot better now, but still to this day, you know, I feel a sense of, you know, isolation and, you know, aloneness that, you know, I have felt ever since that incident occurred. And it's not been until very recently that I've been able to, you know, let a woman back into my life. I've been dating uh, this girl, Cassidy, for, you know, about three years on and off now. And she's an amazing woman. And, you know, finally at a point in my life where I can let myself love and experience emotions and and positive things again. But I mean, I'm 26 years old. It took me almost until I was 22, 23 years old to even build any kind of relationship again. You know, even though it was just, you know, high school sweethearts and young, dumb love and things like that, the trauma from the event and and all the trust issues that, that brought along with it, you know, decimated me for, you know, pretty much my whole life since then. And, um, you know, obviously I've been dealing with depression and anxiety and things like that since I've been on and off, you know, pretty much every anti-anxiety medicine and antidepressant in the book from Abilify and Lexapro and uh, Wellbutrin to I've been on Valium and Xanax and Buspar and, and, you know, you name it, I've probably taken it. And, you know, finally it got to the point to where, you know, there was a lot of positives that the antidepressants and anti-anxiety medicines helped me through. Um, as far as getting over a lot of the initial shock and trauma, but it got to the point uh, the past couple of years where, you know, they were probably doing more harm than good from an athletic standpoint, you know, got to the point to where the Valium and the Lexapro were affecting with how well I could train and take care of my body and my mind. And I had to make a really hard decision between um, choosing medication and choosing to try to take a more holistic approach so that I could continue my career. And, you know, getting off of, you know, Valium was the hardest thing to get off of. I'd obviously had to take time to get off the antidepressants and things like that. But I actually just stopped Valium cold turkey after probably taking 20 to 30 milligrams a day for years. And so I wanted to do it the hard way because I was just tired of feeling the way I was feeling. And uh, I always kind of scoff at people and like, oh, well, you know, withdrawals and drug addiction and stuff, you know, it's not hard. Well, you know, I did it and just quitting a benzo cold turkey was extremely difficult. But yeah, I mean, that's a lot of rambling and a lot of talking, but, you know, that's basically the gist of, you know, where I'm at now and what I've dealt with and why I'm at where I'm at right now. Cody, thank you so much for sharing. I 
I'm going to step back a little bit and and maybe unpack a little bit of what you you said, but I do have to say you're around the same age as my son. And when I listened to the, your experience, uh, well, first of all, it made me cry. And I'm a psychiatrist. I don't cry easily about people's trauma. That was horrifying, that story. And imagining how your mom reacted, I would have been in the same, I, I don't know what I would have done. So you're extremely brave for talking about this. And I really appreciate you you sharing with me and with Corey this story. When did you finally talk about what happened? When did you share exactly what happened? And was there any kind of outcome for the perpetrators of the violence? No, there wasn't really much of an outcome as far as that went. I, um, you know, I held on to it for a long time and definitely didn't really tell anyone what really happened um, up until, you know, shoot, probably four or five, maybe six years ago, maybe 2016 or 17. So by then, obviously, my parents were furious, not at me, but at the situation. And so if you told my dad today that he could go, and, and, you know, make those guys, you know, pay and, and get someone to press charges or do whatever, you know, I, my dad would jump at, jump at the opportunity. But um, frankly, I would point. too, Cody. <laughs> I, I would like to go back. And honestly, I, I'm sure that they're torn apart by that. But I hear you, you do talk very openly. You speak about your experience with depression and with anxiety. Were there some seeds of mental illness before the experience, or do you think that everything really began at that time after the incident? I don't think that there were necessarily seeds. I definitely think that there are definitely a lot of things that I deal with that probably make me more prone and susceptible to dealing with things like that. So I've been, uh, you know, battling with, you know, ADHD, ADD, you know, it, it changes a lot. You know, people call it different things and things. I used to be on Intuitive and ADD meds and, th and things like that. Never took anything like Adderall or any kind of, you know, amphetamine-based uh, treatment, but things like that. I was at one point, uh, and I may still be, you know, I was diagnosed on the spectrum with, you know, Asperger's. So there's maybe some part of it where there's definitely a little bit of emotional growth that probably took a little bit longer than normal. I question sometimes whether or not that was really me being on the spectrum or me just being a very shy, very introverted kid. I may I may have it and that may be part of it. But, um, you know, I'm just trying to answer your question. It's, you know, th those may be parts of what kind of make me more susceptible to dealing with these kind of emotional issues and struggles. Well, uh, Cody, I'd love to give you a big hug right now, a group hug for everybody. Man, that story is uh, pretty powerful. I, I have a friend of mine, his name's Sheldon Kennedy. Uh, he's going to be on the pod, and he was sexually abused by his coach. And I know that it's different. It's trauma. It's different than your trauma. But he said to me, he said once, you know, the event happens. You can't go back and change it. You can't do anything about it. But everything after that becomes mental health. And do you feel that's something that uh, you can agree with? Or, you know, is that something that, you know, is, is where you're at too as well? Yeah, I would, I would definitely agree with that. I think, um, you know, for me, I basically had to almost hit rock bottom for me to realize that, you know, I was struggling, you know, it got to the point back in 2016 and 17, where I was just a very angry person, hated everyone for no reason, was always looking for an excuse to get pissed off and to be confrontational. And um, 
I always was isolating myself around my peers and racing, you know, definitely had a mouth that I'd run in person on social media, you know, whatever it was, I'd just be very combative and, you know, just, just all around, just be an aggressive person. And, you know, I'm not sure how much of that was, was coping mechanisms and me trying to isolate myself and keep myself away from people versus, you know, there was just a lot of anger and, you know, emotions that hadn't been really worked through since the incident. And, you know, at that point, I kind of was at a place where, you know, not completely, but, you know, my job and my career and my life was in jeopardy. And it's like, if I didn't start to work on, you know, my anger and all these things that I was now doing, and I was now outwardly causing issues on that, you know, I was going to lose one of the best things that happened in my life was being introduced to my love for racing. And so from the first moment that I got in a race car, I knew that that was what I wanted to do if I could do it for the rest of my life. And um, when it, obviously when it came down to continuing just being an angry, spiteful, bitter person because of the things that happened, I had to really take up my first big, you know, introspective look at myself in the mirror and be like, are you going to die on this hill? Or are you just going to let yourself burn to the ground and ruin everything because you're upset? And um, you know, that was really the first time as an adult that I tried to go back and actually start the therapy process and, and getting the healing. You know, growing up, I had, you know, just because of ADD and the ADHD and all those things, I, I saw a psychiatrist. So therapy and things like that weren't foreign ideas to me. It didn't, it didn't intimidate me going to a therapist, but it wasn't until I really looked at, you know, okay, well, why am I so angry and miserable all the time? I'm, you know, 21, 22, 19, 20 years old. I'm a professional race car driver. I'm living the dream, yet I'm, I'm pissed off and I'm upset and nothing seems to fulfill me or make me happy. You know, obviously at that point I was like, this has got to stop. And, and I really realized that the root of it all was just my frustration and anger and pain and all the, the trauma that, you know, occurred when that happened. And so I think that, you know, when I first brought all that up, you know, I never really looked at it from the standpoint of, from a PTSD standpoint, it was it's just like, I didn't realize that that kind of trauma could have that much of an impact on me. And clearly it did. I just wasn't willing to look at myself in the mirror. This is why I asked you about the way you talk about yourself. You know, I was dumb and naive, That those kind of comments. I thought I deserved this, that I thought I, I think it was that I thought I deserved depression. What did you mean by that? Well, I just felt... When everyone around you is telling you, you know, how bad you are, how much you suck, how nobody likes you, nobody wants to be your friend and and all of those things. I think that, you know, part of me definitely started to believe that. And when all that happened, you know, there's definitely that part of me that, that started to, you know, manifest those negative feelings and opinions of myself, you know, definitely took the worst turn possible of like, okay, well, if all those things are true, then maybe I got what I had coming to me with, with all this stuff. And obviously in hindsight, that was a very twisted twisted viewpoint and the logic on that is, you know, beyond ridiculous, but that's in the moment and in the situation, there's a part of me that's like, okay, well, what did I do to deserve this? You know, what, what could I have done differently to not have had what happened happened? That's how I felt. Just excuse my language. Fuck it. Burn it down. You know, let's, and I had no, I, I just wanted every, everything to, to change or, or to just like, I didn't care. Um, did you get to that point where you just didn't care anymore? Like you just had almost no emotion and it was just, you know what? If I destroy it, I destroy it. I mean, that's just, that's how I got to at one point in my life. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a part of me that, you know, I got, I definitely hit rock bottom at a point where, you know, you know, a suicide attempt was made. And so, 
you know, the problem was even after that, it kind of fluttered between not caring at all about anything or anyone or, or, or anything whatsoever to if I was feeling something, it was nothing but just anger and aggression and just negative emotions. And so, you know, even in that time, it was a battle of, okay, well, what's better, feeling nothing at all or just absolutely hating everything and every, every one of my life. So you ultimately, you reached out to your mom and she knew about meds. You knew about meds previously, talked about therapy, and you thought, I got to do something. What was it like to ask for help, to get that help? What was your experience like, your journey in, in trying to get some help? So I think the first handful of weeks of that process, you know, I think I was very impatient and um not very receptive to what I was being told and, and the treatment plan and things like that. You know, I thought that, you know, okay, I'm going to start going to therapy. I'm going to get some some meds and poof, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be great. All I need is a little pep talk and, and a bottle of some antidepressants and, and I'll be on my merry way. And so for me, I think that that, that was my first big hurdle in, in getting, you know, my mental health taken care of was learning the patient's learning that it is a process and it's a daily battle you have to choose to fight to get better. It's not something where someone's going to be like, okay, here's your problem. Here's the solution done. Um, you know, it's it's very much a, a, a deal where even today, you know, I have to get up and choose to, you know, fight the fight to take care of myself mentally and physically and do the best that I can because it's not a one size fits all with therapy and medication. And, you know, I thought it was going to be, I thought I was just going to, okay, they're going to know exactly what drug to put me on and, and what kind of therapy and counseling or psychiatry I need and that it was going to be done. But obviously that's not how the real world works. That's not how care and therapy and mental health works. And it's a process of trial and error and going through, you know, what the right combination of, you know, care with medicine and care with with therapy and counseling is going to be the right fit for me. And I definitely had to learn a ton of patience in that early on in the first steps. Was the suicidal, the suicidal thoughts or the, the suicide attempt, was that prior to asking for help or is that after you'd engaged in some care? That was definitely before I engaged in care, and that was at a point where, you know, I thought that, you know, I had all the answers or that no one else was going to have the answers for me. Can you talk about that at all, the experience and, and what got you not to end, end your life or how that led in some way to getting help? Well, for me, it wasn't something where it wasn't... Uh, <laughs> It wasn't something where it, it went according to plan. You know, it was um, something where, you know, I was at rock bottom and I was in, in my car in a parking lot and took a full bottle of pills very well, not expecting to wake up the next morning and uh, ended up waking up the next morning. And, you know, at that point, it kind of um, was fairly anticlimactic in my, own, in my own eyes at that time. And it just was something where, it was like, all right, well, I guess that wasn't the answer. What's the next part? But even then, even with all that situation happening, it was something where I still didn't get help for quite some time after that. 
I was actually living out in California at the time. So I was away from my family, away from my support system, you know, basically isolated myself both in a emotional and mental standpoint, but also a very physical standpoint. My parents are living in North Carolina. Most of my friends and family and people that I know are living in North Carolina. And I wanted to up and, you know, I'm like, okay, well, I'm just going to go apply, apply to university, get, get a, move out, move out to California and just do my own deal and just take care of myself and do whatever. And clearly that wasn't the answer. And even at that point, when I had hit absolute rock bottom, that wasn't a kick in the butt for me. I think what happened for me at some point was there was enough guilt and dread um, about what had happened and what I had let myself get to, to where, you know, I think I finally did develop a sense of, of shame in myself and like some part of me that still valued myself and knew I was worth something to be like, hey, like this is stupid, like you're being an idiot for trying to do this and trying to outlive like this. Like, so for once that that kind of negative voice that, that kind of, you know, used to just insult myself actually was like, you're being a, an idiot for trying to live like this bad lifestyle and, and not taking care of yourself. And so, you know, it was a very slow process. It wasn't like a light switch for me. It wasn't like a holy crap, I have to flip around and change my whole life. It still was a very slow process because I'd been living pretty much for for 10 years of just anger and hate and regret and just lack of trust and insecurities and all these things to where the intellectual part of me knew that, okay, this has got to change, but there was still so much, you know, resistance from all the emotions and the battle that I was dealing with internally. When you're in your car, do you feel like that's almost your sanctuary? Like I felt when I played hockey, I'd get inside the boards and that was the only place I felt safe. And I felt like that was my sanctuary and everything else in the world just kind of tuned out for me. Uh, the fans, everybody, and it was really the place that I felt safe. Yeah, for me, 100%. Even to this day, you know, I, I'm definitely doing a lot better, but I've kind of learned to kind of tame the chatter in my head. You know, it's just a lot of noise and, and stress and anxiety that I deal with. And the two places in my life that I've kind of found the escape from that is racing 100%. And then also, uh, you know, motorcycles just in general, because it's something that's such an all intensive activity that you don't have time to think about other things. And so, you know, when I strap into a race car, it's the one place where nothing outside of that racetrack matters. I get to fully invest myself and dive into what's going on in the moment. You know, it doesn't matter if I have problems or stresses or worries back at home or, or with people or friends or anything. It's like I get to live in the moment and enjoy this passion that I've loved to do for, for most of my life now. And that is my escape. That is my getaway. And, and that's one of the reasons why I love racing so much is because it's, it's my happy place. And as crazy as it sounds, you know, going 180 to 200 miles an hour in a stock car is where I'm the most calm. I am, I am calm. I am at peace. I feel like I'm at home more than I am in my own bed, you know, when I when I hop into a race car. It's interesting you say that because we've interviewed several athletes like that. Bubba Watson said when he got inside the ropes, that's where he felt safe. Kevin Love, when he's on the court, that's where he felt safe. And even though I'm a hockey player, you're a race car driver. It's it's eerily similar for all of us that when you struggle, we all have that place where we can just tune everything out. And do you find that the adrenaline kind of drives you through that? I, I you must, you must have the, like, you must love adrenaline. And I loved it. I, I love getting hit with a puck. I, I actually didn't mind getting punched in the face. I just felt like it, right. I just felt like that adrenaline just kept me alive and it kept me going. Yeah. And so that, that's something where, 
the anxiety part of me definitely struggles because adrenaline is definitely what I'm always chasing, whether that's in the race car and in with my career, but also just, you know, I'm an adrenaline junkie now. And so I'm always looking for, for that next hit of adrenaline, whether that be on a motorcycle and, and doing things like that, or just doing other extreme sports and things like that. Um, you know, I have a hard time just relaxing. And, it, and thankfully this year and a little bit of last year, I finally started to learn how to actually just relax and enjoy my free time as relaxation and calm and things like that. Because, you know, up until the last year or two, you know, if I had free time, I wanted to spend it, you know, high octane, heart beating as fast as I could have it beating, you know, just just high intensity, high energy, high action, whatever I'm doing with my free time, if I'm not in a race car. And so that's great. If that's my happy place, and that's how I find my comfort. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but it is with someone who's also trying to balance the the act with anxiety as well. You know, I can't just be hitting the chip 24-7 and living a functional life and taking care of my body as well as my mental health. Diane, wow, that was a lot to take in. So many different things we could talk about, Diane, but I want to talk about the delayed effects of trauma. Even years after the incident, Cody talks about hating everyone, isolating himself from his peers, hiding the truth about what happened. It's clear that this trauma was impacting him in ways he didn't realize. Are these typical effects of trauma? I would say that the way Cody described his experience was very consistent with many of the patients I've seen who have recovered from a very serious trauma, but it's important to remember that people experience trauma in different ways. Most people actually don't have a mental health problem following exposure to a traumatic event, but then other people will have symptoms of depression, struggle with anxiety, develop a problem with substances, and then a few people will develop post-traumatic stress disorder. But his, his anger, his frustration, the way that he isolated himself, the hiding of the truth, and that's a complicated matter as well, all of that is really consistent with exposure to a traumatic event. And the worst part, I think, of that trauma is the guilt and shame that tends to stick to you after experiencing something like that. You always talk about that trauma isn't just one event, though. Is that the case here, or you always say that it's compounded, and that's something you've taught me, that it's compounded over time? My experience is that most people don't have a major psychiatric negative outcome following a single traumatic event. It's often layered, and I will often not see someone until there was a straw that broke the camel's back, but it really depends on the severity of the trauma, the acuity of the trauma, how personal it was. So yes, most people don't have just one thing. Often they have a series of things or a number of issues, early life stuff that's gone on, and then another major event, sometimes even a minor thing that triggers all a cascade of mental health symptoms. I always felt Trauma is trauma, but is there a difference between treating someone who has gone through physical trauma as opposed to emotional trauma? Because Cody, he overcame both. I wouldn't say trauma is trauma. What I would say is trauma is subjective. Trauma is personal. There is a difference in, in the severity of a trauma and how it's experienced. If something is personal, protracted, 
violent sexual traumas, particularly concerning and leading to negative outcomes for people as far as their mental health. And for Cody, what was most concerning is the fact that it was it was a physical attack and it was his friends. It was people that he trusted. It was both an emotional and a physical experience simultaneously, which certainly ups the danger of him having negative outcomes. Bill, the whole thing was horrific. Horrifying. How do you learn to trust again when you have trauma like that? That's one of the most critical pieces that people struggle with as they're recovering from a traumatic event is trust. They don't trust. They don't trust anybody, including their therapist. So working with a a psychologist or a psychiatrist to try to overcome post-traumatic stress disorder or depression or anxiety associated with a traumatic event, really difficult because of the struggles people have with developing trust. As a parent, like, what do you do with something like that? How do you even deal with a child that's been through something like that? You love them. You try to create as much safety as you possibly can. You take responsibility for where you perhaps weren't as effective as you should have been, but at the same time, trying to recognize that there are things in life you can't control. Obviously, Cody's parents had no idea that this was even on the the chart of possibilities. Uh, And I know how it must have been horrifyingly difficult for them to cope with that. You can't have expectations that something like that is going to happen at any time. We'd all be paralyzed. No one would want to leave their house if this was on the the list of possibilities. So they were acting like lots of parents do. You're going to work through it. This is going to build some resilience. Once something like this happens, then you have to pivot very quickly to, we have to keep you safe. I'm sorry that I wasn't able to know this was going to happen and protect you, but we're going to create an environment where you feel as safe as possible. So what's the first step after creating that and and loving your child? Where do you go from there? I don't know the answer to that, Corey. You know everything, Diane. (laughs) What do you do? Do you start with therapy? Do you start with a GP or a family practitioner? That's a really great question. The most important support to protect someone from developing a trauma illness, an illness related to a traumatic event, is social support. So the one of the things that happened for a long time was when you you have all these companies having these critical stress debriefing teams that rush in when something terrible happens. And they found that that actually can provoke the onset of post-traumatic stress disorder. The most important thing to do when you've been exposed to a traumatic event is to surround yourself with people who love you, who you feel safest with, to have that sense of community and safety. That means if it's your parents, your friends, your loved ones, not to bypass those usual supports. Once it seems like things are going in the wrong direction and you need more support, Connecting with a psychologist or a counselor who knows about trauma, with a psychiatrist who knows how to deal with trauma, and making sure that they have those particular skills because you can re-traumatize people by going down a path that they're not prepared for yet. I believe that secrets are toxic, and when you hide things, it only creates more shame and guilt in that person. How do you avoid and deal with that? Is that something you're saying by surrounding yourself? But you don't want everybody to know your business. It's not everybody's business. 
but how do you not create more shame and guilt around that person? Well, you're right. It's not everyone's business. And so the the circle around you that can give you the most support are people that you trust, that you know well, that it's right, appropriate, and safe to share with. So I'm not saying, you know, tell everybody. I'm saying talk to the people that you do have safety and comfort with. But also trying to distract yourself in those early periods is also very important. Believe it or not, the more that you think about in a what's called a hyperadrenergic state, when your brain is just on full alert, you've been through a horrible traumatic event, the more that you talk about it, the more that you focus on it, you actually burn it into your memory. The more likely you are to lay down those trauma memories for them to get stuck in your brain and have negative impacts in the long run. Think about a situation of uh, a young person who goes into the emergency department after a sexual assault What happens is over many hours, they're asked by the nurse when they come in and then the physician and then the police and then and then and they're telling their story over and over and over and over again. And we know that that repetition actually makes them more vulnerable to developing trauma illnesses in the long run. That's a concern, but it's the reality of the situation. And the more layers you put on there, if it's at the personal degree of the attack, if it's sexual in nature, if it's protracted, how violent it is, and there was a lot of that that was in Cody's story, that makes him more vulnerable. So in those early hours, those early days after a traumatic event, trying to be around people that you feel safe, that you love, that you feel supported with, but then trying to distract yourself and not talking about the trauma over and over and over again is actually really good for your brain. It reduces the likelihood that you end up having negative outcomes. The day my article came out in 2017 in the Players' Tribune, I felt like the chains came off. I had hid for so long. Nobody knew, my parents maybe and some other people, but it was the it was the best thing that happened for me. I, I don't, part- I, I mean, I talk about it a lot now, and that's, you know, to help other people, but... Man, that was the day the chains fell off, and it was so freeing for me. But not everybody feels that freedom from talking about a traumatic event. I would argue that developing OCD the way that you did and how scary that was, was traumatic, and it certainly impacted your life. With someone like Cody, who's had that sudden horrifying experience, and then all the pain the surgeries, the hospitalization, his parents, how powerful it was how he described his mother's reaction and never wanting to see her look like that again, her terror and and at seeing him the first time. All of that together, he was just holding in. It was brewing inside of him. And the reason he was lashing out was because he was so in so much pain internally. All of it, the physical pain, the emotional pain, his own, his mom, his frustration at the fact that there was no negative repercussions for the people who did that, the way he was treated by his teachers, all of this was boiling up inside him. And someone, when he first talked about that, who uncorked that, you have to uncork that very, very, very carefully because if he were to, for all that to come out at once and explode, 
that could become completely overwhelming for him. He's holding it under a pressure valve, and that's the job of a good therapist to slowly let that out in a safe space and allow him to allow it to breathe a little bit, kind of get used to that idea, work through that little bit, let a little bit more out. Because I've seen people who have gone to a, a therapist, let it all out, been re-traumatized, and not be able to put it back in the can. So you talk about living with depression. Can you talk about what what depression means to you? Because it means different things to different people. So for me, it's just getting myself motivated to do the most, you know, mundane things, you know, kind of tying into not having that hit of something exciting and new. You know, it's like, well, it got to the point to where it's like, you know, I didn't have people over, so I didn't care how my apartment looked. So it's a mess. You know, there's clothes everywhere. Laundry's not getting done. Plates are piling up in the in the sink because I'm only going to, you know, okay, if I need to use a dish, I'm just going to wash one, use it, and then it goes back back in the sink. And so it's just like a total lack of self-care and motivation to even take care of myself on, on a very basic human level. And just being okay with that is is the big thing. Is like I didn't look at myself and be like, "Oh, you're a slob or you're a pig." Um, you need to clean that up. There was just it was total apathy towards my well being and, and the and the living conditions that I was allowing myself and okay with with being in. That was definitely one of the big factors as I started to get help and started to feel better and then learn with tools and coping mechanisms, you know, how I started to address and realize those things and like, okay, hey, I, I don't want to live like this. And I, I want to be proud of the place that I'm living in. And I want to be able to take care of myself and also tying it back to just the point to where it's affecting my ability to do my job as a race car driver. You know, I'm not, I didn't have the motivation to go to the gym or take care of myself physically. And, um, you know, unfortunately it did take a lot of situations where it started to affect my career and my job before it actually became important enough for me to realize that this has to change. Even though that's not at as serious of a level as some of the other things, you know, again, it took at the point to where, you know, hey, this is starting to affect important things in my life that I do care about deep down, despite the depression and anxiety that I had to, you know, start working on the changes. What about anxiety for you? Because again, that can feel very different for every person. And and in my experience, Anxiety turbocharges depression. So you already you're not you don't you're not motivated. You don't care about things. You don't you know getting in the shower feels impossible, and then you throw anxiety on top of that. What what was anxiety like for you? For me, it's it's still to this day is a very you know paralyzing feeling. You know I in social settings you know I'm still I still struggle quite a lot. Uh, thankfully with my girlfriend you know I'm able to spend more time out and about and hang out with friends and, and do activities and things. But even a couple of years ago, if I were to go out and hang out with a group of friends, if it was more than one or two of my friends that were very close people that I knew very intimately, you know, I didn't want to be around random people or strangers for more than 10, 15, 20 minutes. And, um, you know, one of the reasons why I was into prescribed Valium was just I had really high blood pressure from from the anxiety and I started having really bad panic attacks. And so, you know, the doctors wanted to get me on that to help mitigate some of that stuff. And uh, 
up until recently, you know, I even had a hard time going out in public just to get myself a lunch or, or a dinner or a meal. And um, Postmates and DoorDash and things like that were the best thing that happened to me because I never had to leave my house. And, uh, you know, just being out in public was very foreign for me. And this is, you know, pre-COVID and things like that, where it's like, I didn't feel comfortable leaving my my home. I didn't feel comfortable meeting new people or talking to people and um, not even intentionally isolating myself at that point, but the anxiety and the fear was isolating me at that point. And, you know, my friends always call me the king of Irish goodbyes because as soon as I get overloaded in an environment where, you know, I've had enough, like I just, I leave the, the environment and situation. And thankfully, you know, most of my good friends, they, they know that it's nothing that's, you know, derogatory or, or negative towards them. They, they just know that, you know, once my batteries are out and I don't have anything left to give or I'm just not comfortable that, you know, I'm going to leave and do what's best for me in that moment. I have to ask you about your gal because she sounds like your rock. She, she really does. Uh, and a lot of partners out there don't really know how to respond or how to be with someone that has mental health issues. And that's something that my relationships have struggled with. How does she help you? And how much influence has she had in your life? I mean, it's been big. You know, I think she's definitely a saint for putting up with me, you know, kind of talking about my trust issues and kind of you know, the issues of me pushing people away. It's like at first, you know, we kind of, we weren't necessarily super serious and committed because I didn't want to be super serious and committed. And she gave me a lot of care and love and support, even at the level where, you know, I wasn't willing to make a commitment to her. She just wanted to be caring and loving and supportive and all these things. And so it was a process of me you know, having to stop being stubborn to realize, you know, hey, this isn't a bad thing. You know, it's not scary to have someone want to love and support you. And I think the difficulty in that is going back to the self-love and the self-image thing where it's like, if I don't love myself, how could this person love me? You know, it's like, like, I'm like, well, I hate myself. I think I'm pretty bad. Like, why, what does she see in me that I'm, that I'm missing? And so, you know, obviously wrestling with that and just wrestling with the letting someone into my life at a obviously the closest and most personal level you can have more or less was difficult. But, you know, once I've learned that do a better job at that and not push her away, um, it really just unlocked a world of, you know, peace and, and joy and happiness that I didn't really think I could feel for a long time. You know, just having someone that I can come home and talk to and just kind of, you know, unwind and talk about the good, talk about the bad. And the same thing for her, you know, I, I really enjoy getting to, you know, share my, my energy and, and my love to somebody else, you know, being able to, you know, give back to this person that's doing so much for me. And, um, you know, she, she goes through a lot. She's, uh, she actually graduated from, from vet school pretty recently, and she's been going through getting her licensing uh, done to become a vet doctor here in North Carolina. And so, you know, being a, being a doctor, even if it's on animals is a very big task and a lot of responsibility and, you know, emotional uh, issues that come with that. And so, you know, I think in a way, you know, she understands the emotional struggles, not just from the mental health standpoint and from the racing standpoint, but she obviously goes through a lot as well. So I think, if anything, it makes us more in tune to our struggles, you know, so when I'm having a good day, you know, I can do a better job at helping her through her bad days and vice versa. And so it's a it's a very, very nice thing to have. And then, then it's even better when you're both having good days and you can just enjoy the positive after, you know, a season of hardship and struggles. And so 
you know, opening myself up to that, you know, still, it still isn't easy. There's still days where, you know, if I'm having a bad mental health day, I'm like, man, this, you know, I should just run away and do all this and that. But it's like, you know, thankfully I always reel myself in and realize, you know, hey, like, this is an amazing girl. This is an amazing chance you have to actually rebuild and live a life and share it with somebody that you've always wanted to do. And it's not as scary as I, you know, used to think it is. And so it's still a learning process for me. You know, I'm 26. I've got a lot, a lot to learn in that department, but, you know, thankfully in trying to fix myself and get better myself, I also try to take time. Uh, you know, we do go to couples therapy together just to try to help each other. We want to understand each other better and be heard better, you know, how we can love each other better and and be more receptive to the things that we want and need. And so, you know, I think, I think that's a really great thing to do. You know, you don't necessarily have to have troubles to need couples therapy. And, you know, we definitely have our struggles and our hardships and, and fights and things. But a lot of times, even if things are good, we learn more about each other, trying to go to therapy and get a, someone else to help us process our emotions, which, you know, in turn also, you know, helps me with my own problems and emotions as well. So it's not perfect, but it's definitely something that I'm glad that I got to a place in my life where I can really enjoy and appreciate it. You know, I I got asked, and I, I've I've said this before, but I got asked by a psychiatrist what if I'm proud of what I what I've accomplished to this point, and it was eye opening that even today I'm 49 years old, I couldn't answer, I I couldn't, um, and that was one of the most difficult things I had to come to realize is that you know self love is a is a huge a huge part of it, and healing is not overnight it takes a long time and it takes something that takes every it's every day every day you work on it and just i can't believe you're only 26 years old i, I really can't cody this is um you have such a powerful story i and thank you so much for, for sharing you know when you got into racing and everything that you had uh, that you've been through when you started to get healthy how was that first time you won i mean you were rookie of the year right? How did that feel? Did you feel like you would accomplish something? Because what you did with what's gone on in your life is absolutely incredible. And that must have been something that you're so proud of today. Yeah, I think for me, I definitely struggle with the same issues that you do with the uh, feelings of lack of self-worth and appreciation and being proud of yourself. Um, for me in my racing career, it's been all over the place. And uh, when I won Rookie of the Year, that was back when I was racing in uh, in IMSA and doing a lot of sports car stuff. So at that time, I actually wasn't racing in NASCAR. And that was back when I thought I was going to be a big-time uh, GT sports car racer. And, uh, you know, I had just signed a – after I won Rookie of the Year, I actually just signed a contract with Lamborghini to be their next uh, factory development driver and help them develop their new race car and do all those cool things. And um, – you know, still to this day, you know, I look back at all of all the trophies and the cool things that I did when I was, you know, growing up or in, early in my professional racing career. And it's like, you know, I still, I don't give myself enough credit, whether it's in what I've done in sports cars, what I've done in NASCAR. It's like, anytime I get something done that I feel like I would be proud of, I immediately kind of set it aside and be like, okay, well, what's the next step? You know, I look at, uh, I look a lot at how this year has gone where, um, you know, racing in cup is, is very hard. You know, we're, we're racing against teams uh, that have a lot more budget and funding and sponsorship behind them. And we've had a lot of days where we've punched above our weight and we've beat a lot of people that have double, triple, 10x the budget that we do. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go into a race weekend being like, man, if we could run top 20 today, I'd be freaking ecstatic. And then I go run top 20 and I'm like, 
okay, well, I could have done better. I could, this could have gone better. I could have finished 15th. Now it's time to go run top 15. And it feels like, you know, part of, part of me that's always, you know, wanting more. It's also the same part of me that was not willing to give myself credit for the things that I accomplish. You know, it's a matter of, it's okay to enjoy some positive things. It's, it's okay to have drive too, but, you know, I never give myself that moment of, of appreciation for what I have done to really, you know, give myself that credit. And I'm sure you struggle with that a lot as well. It's, it's fascinating because I'm sitting here looking at you and I'm going, wow, what an incredible story. What an incredible human being. And, I, and I'm just, and it's hard to see that. It's, it's hard to see you say, you know, the same thing that I feel about myself because I look at you and I think you're one of the most incredible people I've ever, I've ever met. And, and, and I don't know if you feel that. I was talking to some other guys that, that feel the same way, but we don't feel that way for ourselves. And it's just, it's mind-boggling to me that we can't feel that. So is that something you practice today is just trying to, um, you know, I don't like the term love myself and all that. I, I just, I, I struggle with that. But um, just to be proud of what you've done and look at some of your, con- you're only 26 years old. You've got so much more going for you. You're, you're going to do incredible things. Um, is your self-worth and self-esteem something today that you continue to try to work on? And what is it, if you do, what do you do for yourself to you know, get to that point for you? Yeah, um, I think for me, the biggest thing that I've worked on to try to continue to practice some, you know, form of self-love, I think that's definitely probably the number one barriers that I still struggle with as far as getting better goes. But it's been a kind of a shift in perspective in what's really important in my life. I realized that I put way too much value and worth into what I'm doing on the racetrack. What what do the results she'd say? You know, that's not indicative of the type of person that I am. You know, it doesn't matter whether I win a bunch of races and championships and things like that. Like, that's not going to fulfill me. And that's part of me learning about myself and also learning, you know, what really is important and what's going to make myself proud, which is, am I trying to be, you know, a decent human being? Am I trying to give back, you know, use this awesome career and awesome job and opportunity that I have to actually, um, you know, do something that's more significant than just driving around, you know, a racetrack. And so I think that, you know, as I learn more to value myself as far as who I am and realize what the bigger picture in life is, you know, that gives me a better frame of mind to learn that self-care and respect. Um, And so I think that's something that still is, is a very difficult point for me, which is why I don't have a whole lot of you know, examples of what I necessarily do to, to get better with that. But it's something that I'm still learning, but I'm all very cognizant of is definitely going to be a big part of, you know, my healing and growing process. I think you're amazing, dude. We had that moment where I said I would like to go back and, and prosecute the people who hurt you, uh, who burned you all those years ago. But I, I, I wanted to ask, because so many young people experience bullying, I'd love to know what what you would say to a young person who was experiencing bullying? For the kids that are experiencing, I think that, you know, if you're afraid to talk to somebody, you can't, you know, you have people around you, no matter who you are, that that love you and care for you and support you. And I think that, that that's the important part. You know, again, as a kid, it's easy to think that you have it all figured out and you you know what's best for you. But, you know, your parents love you to death. You know, they, they brought you into this world and they just want to give you the best and, and make you as well equipped as possible to take on the world. And so 
like I tell all my friends, you know, there's just reaching out to someone can have more of an impact for yourself and for others more than you realize. And I think opening up is is a big first step to tackling some of these problems. I almost always ask people what they would tell their 15-year-old self now. And I guess it, it takes even more meaning with you when you think back to your young self, and you're still pretty darn young, but what would you tell your, your young self looking, looking back at that, that kid in high school? I think back then, I, I always, even then, I still do to this day, struggled to, you know, what's the meaning behind anything? You know, why am I doing what I'm doing with my career, my life, my relationships, my family? You know, why? What's the purpose? What's the reason? What's the meaning? And I think, if anything, if I could only tell myself a sentence going back in time, I'd be like, there is a reason you're going through this and and there is a purpose behind this. And I think, you know, that, you know, whether I'm me at 26 or me at 15 or 13 or whatever, that would give me the peace of mind and confidence to be able to get through whatever I'm dealing with, just to know that there's meaning and purpose behind it and that it can be shaped and molded and used as, as an experience and as, as a story to, you know, turn it into a positive for somebody else. Cody, what do you think of as your greatest accomplishment? in your 26 years? I think for me, just getting over the the biggest part of this battle that I've been dealing with, I think that I, you know, even if I have a hard time giving myself the credit for it, I am proud of overcoming the things that I have, you know, being able to get off the the Valium and, and the struggles with the withdrawals and in the battle to, to, to get off of that and to take care of myself and the battle to get help, you know, when I was, you know, coming off of the, the you know, the suicide attempt and, and all the struggles and all the hatred and anger. I mean, I, I know how much pain and how much hardship it took to get through that. And, you know, for me, if, I, if I'm proud of myself for anything, it's definitely the battles that I've put myself through to get to a better place. And then to be able to use that as a positive in this world where there's just so much crap and there's so many people dealing with the same things, to be able to use those experiences to potentially help someone else. You know, if, if in my life, I don't win races and I don't win championships and I don't make anything more of my racing career, but I could save one or two lives along the way. Like I could, I could, you know, go out pretty happy with that and feeling like I made a difference. Players Tribune.com.